Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Peter Black. Peter is a foresight practitioner and a veterinary epidemiologist with extensive experience in addressing emerging infectious disease threats. He spent 14 years as a field veterinary officer and then 16 years in policy roles about national and international animal health issues. In 2005, Peter gained a master's degree in strategic foresight from Swinburne University of Technology. Peter appreciates and understands the basis of different worldviews and believes that this is, this is fundamental to working across disciplines. He has developed a capacity to view opportunities and threats through a range of lenses by using a number of different frameworks, leading to a larger range of strategic options. Welcome to FuturePod, Peter. Thanks, Peter. A real pleasure to be here. Great to, great to be talking again. So question one, what's the Peter Black story? Well, I am a veterinary epidemiologist and I gained my Master's of Preventive Veterinary Medicine from the University of California in 1993. And at that stage, I was working for the state government in Queensland. And when I came back in 1994, there was the first case of Hendra virus in Australia. It was in Queensland. People may remember a number of racehorses and a trainer yeah. died. Was that Vic Rail, wasn't it? Vic Rail. And the following year, you might also recall that a fellow died in Mackay. And in retrospect, he was exposed within a month of the cases in Brisbane with Vic Rail. And we had a meeting to work out how that could happen. And that's when, after a whole lot of thinking, the idea of uh, bats being involved in the spread was investigated and it turns out that in fact bats were flying foxes were the source of the virus and that really spiked my interest in emerging infectious disease. And then in 1996 the first case of Australian bat lysovirus occurred in Rockhampton when I was the veterinary officer there and I was involved in that investigation as well. So my interest in emerging infectious disease had been spiked and then I actually moved into an area of risk management because of the case or the outbreak of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, BSK, BSE. Yeah, mad, mad cow, cow disease. Mad, mad cow That's disease. The and at that stage, it was my interest was focusing around the risk management and risk perception and the fact there was a big inquiry called the Phillips Inquiry which looked at how that was managed in the UK. And it wasn't just around the policy issues but how they communicated risk and it wasn't just around the science. And I heavily moved into the area of uh, risk analysis, risk management and policy. And so I moved to a head office position with a focus on risk management and I was trying to influence and incorporate risk management more fundamentally into the animal and plant health service there and developed an interest in strategy and policy. And it was very lucky that at that stage the department was offering positions to undertake the graduate certificate in Foresight through Swinburne. 
So that was the very start with Richard Slaughter in 2001. And I put my hand up to be involved in that. And I was interested in the response within the department was that you're a veterinarian. This is not for you. <laughs> uh, this is for people who are working in the policy space. Uh, you're a technocrat. And I responded quite vigorously and defended the fact that I didn't think that was an attitude which was very helpful to the department. And um, to their credit, I was allowed to go forth and start the grad certificate. And what I thought was foresight beforehand and what I learned in that first year was amazing. That just the breadth of the course and the thinking blew me away. And I found that I was quickly covering areas which I hadn't anticipated. And it opened up my thinking to the extent that I ended up changing my role and moving to Canberra in the national office, the office of the chief veterinary officer. I applied for a job down there and moved to Canberra, which was a pretty big move at the time for me. Yeah. And I'd already developed this interest in foresight, but I had to work out whether I was going to get permission to continue this in the Commonwealth Department. And within a year, it was pretty clear that there were some people there who were very supportive. And so I actually could move into the Masters uh, through Swinburne. The breadth of it was um, exciting to me, but also the fact that you and Joe and Richard were encouraging us to apply what we were learning on the, role, on the job right as we went. And that's what I tried to do with my role in Canberra. So in 2003, in terms of stepping out and actually doing something, we got permission within the department to run three workshops with Sahailinia Tulla in the department to introduce foresight. And as a result of those workshops, a whole lot of things were planted and I must admit I had to keep watering and ploughing the field for some time <laughs> after that. But we did end up with a scanning framework and a scanning network post that set of workshops. And I also linked with Kate Delaney, yep. who was setting up the Australasian Joint Agency Scanning Network across a number of departments. And that's still going on, as is the scanning that's happening within the uh, animal health and biosecurity area within the current Department of Agriculture. It's easy to become cynical and a little bit critical. And I did decide, I made a conscious effort, and part of it was as a result of some of the learning at the Foresight course for sure. I remember very well the exercise we did in the space capsule <laughs> when we were given all the data about what we had at our disposal and how we sat there and continued to debate, even after you warned us a number of times and we all died. Yes, uh, you did. <laughs> you remember that too. Most people, most people did die. <laughs> so I decided to actually pour my energy into what I could in the role that I was in, and that developed over a number of years, but we ended up uh, increasing the number of workshops that were run because different people were joining the department in different roles. I was combining it with my epidemiology discipline skills and we actually ran a number of workshops in other countries because I was increasingly starting to do things around disease control in Southeast Asia and I wanted to share some of the stuff around foresight. So we actually ran some workshops in Vietnam, Philippines and Indonesia and the Sahel again was involved. 
At the same time, there was the development of the Australian Biosecurity Cooperative Research Centre for Emerging Infectious Disease, which ran from 2003 to 2010. And there's a big focus through that CRC on emerging infectious disease. And I was interested, again, in trying to bring some foresight influence into that thinking where I could and applying a number of lenses around emerging infectious disease-related issues. I was interested in the fact that there was a lot of really good scientific work happening within that CRC, but there wasn't so much a focus on why diseases were emerging. And I thought Mm. this is where the foresight area really had a part to play and ended up co-supervising a student who looked at that in some detail. I also found that from the reading that I was doing in the Foresight course that I was quickly moving into other areas which were broader, much broader than my epidemiology training, like uh, global environmental change, food systems, sustainability and what that really meant, complex adaptive systems, post-normal science, eco-health and one-health approaches, and ecological economics. I was starting to see the world in a whole range of different ways. And in 2006, we ran a workshop as part of the International Symposium for Epidemiology and Economics, where we had people from different disciplines coming together. I was starting to get very interested in the fact that a lot of the gold was at the edge of disciplines, where it was actually where disciplines come together. Yeah. And so at that workshop, we had uh, Sahail, obviously is the futurist and sort of a polymath. We had Professor Tony McMichael, who was a human epidemiologist from Australian National University and had done a lot of work across a lot of fields but was very influential in human health and climate change, very big thinker. He had written a book in 1993 called Planetary Overload. We had David Walton Taves from the University of Guelph, who was in the eco-health area, and Peter Dajak, who was a zoologist, uh, working on emerging infectious disease, and who is now with uh, EcoHealth Alliance in New York. And if you follow some of the COVID stuff that's happening at the moment, you'll probably see his name. Yeah. So we brought those people together and we ran a workshop about the role of veterinary epidemiologists in EcoHealth and at trying to apply a number of different frameworks. And I learned something from that. There were some people who found the future stuff of that workshop absolutely mind-blowing and exciting there are others who couldn't see the sense (laughs) and wanted more of the very technically focused examples of how to do x y and z we ran another workshop post that for uh, veterinary epidemiologists at the gold coast where we tried to apply what we'd learnt from the first workshop and we didn't have all the heavy hitters was just myself and another colleague who worked in the emerging infectious disease area, Hume Field, who did a lot of work with the bats in Australia around Hendra and also went on to be involved in the Nipah outbreak in Malaysia. But at that workshop, we applied integral frameworks. We introduced CLA. We did start off with a shared history, et cetera, so we had pulled out different parts of the six pillars approach. I was still trying to develop internally to see where Peter Black was going to go within his position and we were engaging other people to keep things rolling within the department and it is the long game. Uh, I was doing 
more and more in the region uh, linked to not just animal disease but zoonotic influenza because you may recall that H5N1 influenza emerged in 2004. It actually started earlier but was recognised more formally in about 2004. And the world was becoming very interested in the fact that this could mutate into a pandemic flu. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of energy around that. So I worked on that area for a number of years, but it, by about 2014, I developed a lot of networks in the region and I felt that uh, I'd come to the end of my role, in a sense, within the Commonwealth Department and what I could achieve. And I took a position with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization in Bangkok, working on influenzas. Uh, H5N1 initially, it developed into a number of others because other viruses emerged while I was there. Well, actually, H7N9 had emerged before I started. So I was working on zoonotic influenzas and other emerging infectious diseases. And it's interesting to note that the actual name of the program, which is supported by the US government, USAID, was the Emerging Pandemic Threats Program. <laughs> um, prophetic. Yeah, prophetic. And they were thinking very clearly along some of the issues which are very important to the current state of play. And within that Emerging Pandemic Threats Program, there was another program which was called PREDICT. And part of that program was actually sampling animals across the globe, especially wildlife, looking for uh, and identifying a range of hitherto unknown viruses. And that work was also coupled with some of the work we were doing with FAO, looking at the interface between uh, wildlife, domestic animals and humans to see what potential transmission pathways there were for some of these new viruses. And the work that predicted did identify a number of coronaviruses in a number of places. They, they identified a lot of other viruses, not just coronaviruses, but they were out there and that, that work had already been done. When I was still with FAO, I was again trying to encourage people within FAO to have a more foresight perspective and encourage them to attend a course in Bangkok, which Sahar ran with Joss Wagner, and again, trying to expand the group of people who had a range of perspectives so that, not that I wanted to have a cohort around me, but that I definitely wanted some people to appreciate why some of this thinking was important. And I had done that in a range of ways across uh, many years. But in 2018, I moved back here to Australia and for the last 18 months, two years, I have still been consulting into the region, but I've been trying to increase some of the foresight-focused work that I'm doing. And I'm trying to see what the entry points are in a number of those ways in the work that I do. And you really have to dial it to the appropriate level, depending on who the client or the audience is. And I'm still coming to grips with that. So that's where I am now, and of course, I'm now in the grip, as the world is, of uh, COVID-19 and looking on with great interest as an epidemiologist, but also some horror about how things are unfolding. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk some more about, about that probably in our final question. The Peter Black now in 2020 talking to 
to Peter Black starting out on the journey? If you could give advice to yourself that you would have listened to, <laughs> what advice for the journey you were starting would you have given yourself? In the foresight journey, I think it would have been uh, give yourself permission and accept that sometimes it's going to be much harder than you think. Yeah. From an institutional perspective, if I look back at what we achieved within the Department of Agriculture, there are some good things. There are now positions which formally have uh, strategic intelligence and foresight in the position descriptions, which wasn't the case, you know, 15 years ago. Mm. And there is still a scanning network. But I would still say we didn't get anywhere near the vision that we had anticipated after the first set of workshops. And I now understand that that's not that unusual, that it is actually a pretty, it's a long game and it's a harder game than I anticipated. I think my enthusiasm, especially early on, was uh, admirable and I think we needed that. We needed that level of support from my colleagues in the department to keep it rolling along. But it wasn't enough to really build some of the momentum which was required. And looking back, I don't think we had courted some of the higher level executives as champions in a way which was going to help us translate into real activity. I also think, in retrospect, it was difficult to bring this forward from within an animal health-focused area of the department. It probably would have been area easier if it came from something which was a much more broadly policy-based area within the department. So that was a lesson. But in terms of a message back to me, I think certainly follow your passion. I've got no problem with that, and I think I have followed my passion in many ways. But I think in some respects I've sold myself a little bit short because I didn't want to step out of some of the comfort space around uh, the epidemiology, which I have an affinity for, I suppose. But maybe I would have made bigger inroads if I had. And perhaps being less risk averse would have helped. <laughs> I, th I think in retrospect, if I look at what I've, I, I did, I was stepping out, but I always had, you know, one hand on the safety rail. I didn't step out as far as I should have or could have and maybe missed some opportunities. So message to Peter Black from 15 years ago, go a bit more wild. <laughs> yeah, look, I think you're being a bit harsh on yourself. I mean, I think the thing we all learnt is it is difficult to work against established paradigms and tradition. And the angle of going into science disciplines where you're trying to introduce more of a meta perspective is, is really difficult for people. Yeah, it's interesting how some people got it almost immediately and others resisted it almost to the end. And it, you really had to, I mean, what I was trying to do within the apartment the department, in a way, was infect a number of people with this broader perspective. And it, it worked to some degree, but we probably didn't get the level that we needed to drive it harder. I'm not saying it's finished, though, because those seeds are still there. They're still popping up. 
and it's encouraging to see some of the thinking which is happening now. I suspect that post-COVID in a whole lot of countries, there will be increased interest in foresight. I think that the countries which invested heavily in foresight in the last 20 years often did post a disruption. And I think Singapore did post SARS. Well, I know that the scanning that they were doing in Singapore, because we developed relationships with people working in Singapore, that the melamine contamination issue in China, which you might recall, which was in the milk powder, they quickly got the message, because they import a lot of food, that the requirement from their scanning was to be finding things before it hit the paper. So those things drive an investment in some of the areas. I think the UK actually invested quite heavily in foresight post the mad cow issue and the big outbreak of foot and mouth disease in 2001. Yep. And DEFRA did have quite heavy foresight activity for a while there, but the UK government, with its horizon scanning, did start to step up and was looking at a whole broad range of issues around foresight then. Again, I think it followed some major disruptions. So I think COVID will lead some countries to do this again, but it requires a bit more than just setting up a unit, etc. Question two, one where I ask the guests to discuss the use of a favoured tool or method that is central to their practice. What do you want to talk to the guest about? Well, the framework which I tended to use, and it's as a result really is the fact that the initial workshops that we ran with Sahail were around the six pillars. So the six pillars is a framework which I'm comfortable with. I can tell you that at the time when we first ran the first workshop with Sahail, I wasn't too sure about some of the stages. So the mapping with the shared history, no problem at all. And in fact, for the people that I've dealt with, in the last 15 to 20 years, the shared history always goes well. Yeah. And the futures triangle is variable, but you have to set it up in the right way and then it is definitely something which is easy. And I would say also that the emerging issues analysis in the groups that I've run has also been pretty clear, except that what it points out, as does the shared history, is that the narrowness of the views in the room. So quite often what we'll find is we'll get a whole range of stuff, but because people are coming from a pretty reasonably similar background, you're not getting (laughs) the outliers which you need to stimulate some of the conversation. And when you start to talk about this, the penny drops for many people. And I can remember at the workshop we ran at the Gold Coast, one of the feedbacks at the end of the workshop was fantastic that we didn't have enough other disciplines here. They recognised, of course we had spoken about the people who aren't in the room, that they had probably missed something by not involving other disciplines or people with other points of view. At one of the other workshops we ran with the department, we specifically actually invited people who were going to have different perspectives from outside the discipline. And that turned out to be very useful. So I would, I would all, always encourage that if it's possible. 
some institutions, of course, aren't very comfortable with that. Well, I was going to come back to you, though, was the first workshop, uh, the timing issue. I thought, I'm not sure how these people are going to get this. You know, this is, this is too far, too fast for them. <laughs> and it was really surprising that that session with Sahail was fantastic. It went really well. So I learnt then not to prejudge what a group of people can achieve with the right sort of facilitation. Of course, uh, the CLA issue was covered very well and I would say it's one of the things which has stuck with me in terms of the way I look at a lot of things. I did hear Zia in one of your interviews recently saying that CLA is one of the things which all Australian <laughs> foresight people seem to talk about, and I'd be guilty of being one of those. <laughs> uh, the power of the metaphor, we didn't cover that quite so clearly in the first couple of workshops, but the later workshops with Sahail has come through really powerfully, and I think that the metaphor issue is very central to how the range of options you come up with can be so different in terms of addressing an issue. Yeah, well, we we tell ourselves powerful stories to understand the world and how those stories explain what we're to do. And those stories both energise us, but they also lock us in yeah. to certain things we can do. Yeah, very powerful. And I have seen that uh, working in the region, uh, as I have with many countries in uh, Southeast Asia particularly, I would think that one of the challenges around the metaphors, uh, but also more generally, is that a number of the countries that I have worked with really, they have a used future. They're following very much yeah. a development pathway, which they didn't almost choose. It's just, well, they might have chosen it, but they, they chose to repeat what's already happened in other parts of the planet, yeah. much to their detriment. And to actually open up that conversation is possible, but you've got to choose the right time and the right group. Mm. We did do backcasting, and I think backcasting uh, is a very powerful tool used in the right way and visioning. But, again, it depends on where you're at. For some of these things, they work better with different groups than others, and it's whether you've read the audience well enough during the first couple of sessions around the mapping, the shared history, etc., and the future's wheel as to how far you take them at the end. Now, Sahail seems to be able to do this with groups irrespective, whereas I think I would have much more difficulty. You know, he, he's a master. There are some places where I still wouldn't step unless I was a bit more comfortable. The other frameworks that I, I just want to mention, though, that, uh, that for sometimes when we're working with um, people, and it's not always in a workshop setting, it's just talking about what might be required for the future, the discussion around the future's cone is quite enough for them to actually mm -hmm. understand that there are a range of futures out there and that you can do things to pull the curve towards your preferred future. And that mm -hmm. can be, for some people, very eye-opening. Yeah. I would say, too, that the other framework which I used, especially early on in getting support within the department, was... Uh, the generic foresight approach that Joe Voros had or has, you know, with the what's happening, what's really happening, working all the way through down to strategy. And the reason 
I used that was that for people in that apartment, it was although it's not truly linear, it helped them identify where things were fitting in and why we were doing things at different times using different methodologies or tools to help us work towards that. The issue around the difference between what's happening or what seems to be happening and what's really happening is where the big chasm seems to be in a lot of the work that I do. And that's why for the emerging infectious disease type stuff, I spend a fair bit of time in that space. So rather than just looking at the fact that there's a new virus and it's led to a new disease, can we unpack that in a whole different way? And so a whole lot of these methods can help in that. And the one I suppose that I've used a lot has been causal layer analysis. And I use that especially as an example around the Nipah virus. And I presented that at um, an international conference in 2003 in Chile to try and get some broadened perspectives around this, why this virus emerged in Malaysia at the time. So for Nipah virus, it's a disease which emerged in Malaysia in uh, 1999. It now is known that it came from flying foxes and entered into a piggery, a large piggery, uh, and the pigs infected people, the people who are looking after the pigs. Nipah virus is a paramyxovirus in the same class or close family as Hendra. But the reason that Nipah emerged in 1999 wasn't simply just the fact, of course, that the virus exists in fly foxes. The virus that existed in fly foxes, as Hendra has in Australia, for many thousands of years at least. What had happened in Malaysia was that there had actually been a government policy to increase pig production to mm. supply the Singapore market. And this piggery was actually a very big piggery. It's the largest piggery in Malaysia at the time. And as part of their efficiency drive, they had planted mangoes between the pig pens in the piggery. So at the same time they were producing pigs, they were also producing mangoes. And the mangoes were actually right above some of the pig pens, so the mangoes were dropping into the pig pens. Now, what drove this? Well, of course, they were maximising their profit for the area that they had. They were being super efficient in inverted commas. Mm. And that's what attracted the flying foxes to the mangoes and allowed the transmission to the pigs. Over 105 people died in that outbreak and they ended up slaughtering more than a million pigs. So my discussion with the CLA was that, okay, it was the fact that there was a piggery close to uh, flying fox colonies, etc. But the fundamental driver under this was much more within the CLA framework. At the worldview level, it was around resource consumption, efficiency, economic growth. And that was what drove this. And the myth and metaphor was around West is best or almost uh, maybe even technology will save us. So this thinking that CLA revealed showed that the issue was at a much more fundamental level. And I was trying to share that with people about how the other issue was that it actually had to be a very big piggery for the virus to get established. If it had been a very small piggery, it wouldn't have been big enough. The virus would have got introduced and actually died out. 
But with a large piggery, you could actually have the dynamics within the piggery of having enough susceptible animals because you're getting piglets born all the time that you would get ongoing transmission. So actually a very big piggery was required to get transmission into the pig population, Mm. which raised the whole issue around thinking of intensive production, how intensive is intensive enough, what are the implications of intensive production in a whole range of circumstances. And that has flowed through into my thinking also around influenzas. And potentially we'll see, it may even be important in the COVID story, it's a bit early to tell, but whether there actually has been some wildlife animal being farmed at some level, which may have allowed uh, the transmission from bats at these wet markets. Yes, at a kind of metaphor level, we can live with the notion of a universe that is random and has chance. We're less comfortable if, in fact, we discover that we, in fact, are complicit in our own harm. Yeah. This is why I do not like the war metaphor around fighting COVID-19. The virus is out there. It's a co-evolutionary process with us as we populate and develop, in inverted commas, the planet. But the virus is not out there to destroy us. It's just taking advantage of a niche which has become available. And we are complicit in that. So you're very right in that respect. I think there is some randomness to it, but sometimes we create the conditions which increase the role. Stack Stack the the dice. Stack the dice slightly (laughs) in some directions. And we've done that on a number of occasions. In fact, with the influenza H5N1, the stacking of the dice in my view, was the great increase in uh, chicken numbers in China and Vietnam between 1993 and 2003, but more particularly the rapid increase in duck numbers because ducks, dabbling water birds, are really the source of these influenza viruses. And the numbers increased drastically between 1993 and 2003. And what was the driver for that? It was a way for people to get into the cash economy It was actually encouraged in parts of Southeast Asia. Question three, the one where I ask Peter Black, citizen of the world, how do you make sense of the emerging futures around you and you choose whatever context and time frame you want to put on how you make sense of the emerging futures. Yeah, that's a great question, Peter, and I must admit straight up that it's been dominated since COVID-19 with thinking around the COVID-19 current play. And I've started to recognise that one of the models which is potentially making sense for me or options, one of the futures is like we're all on a big old luxury ocean liner in some sense which is looking pretty decrepit and is getting harder and harder to maintain but there are a lot of vested interests who want to keep it rolling. And because of a number of threats, there's a bunch of groups who are working on different at different decks in different rooms they're getting together and they're designing a range of other watercraft 
many of them are sailing boats or boats that are maybe even are run by renewable energy, etc. But they're looking for something which is more aligned to a much softer position on the planet that can also handle storms much more adeptly and more importantly is looking to offer a much more comfortable living experience for a lot more of the global population. That's one of the emerging futures that I can see. That's preferable to the one where a whole lot of money is spent to redevelop the luxury liner, in my view. Yeah. In my own little patch of the planet, I feel that I've had a fortunate life and I've been spoiled in so many ways, but I have two daughters, 28 and 25, and the options for their emerging futures can still be very exciting and rewarding, but they are coming from such a different base from when I was at that age. And trying to put myself in their shoes and appreciate that, I'm recognising how difficult that is. Yeah. That I have some, definitely have blind spots. If you ask them, they'll tell you how many. (laughs) (laughs) But, But I'd really love to be able to appreciate that more. And I heard... Zia, in one of your interviews, talking about the fact that they're really engaging with the young futurists now to see what can be created, and I think that's really important. So I would definitely endorse that view that there's a need for that. The other thing that I do see in this emerging future is that the COVID-19 is getting so much attention at the moment, and rightly so, but the big challenges that were there before COVID-19 are still there. Climate change is still happening. Okay, the emissions may have slowed because of the decreased economic activity at the moment, but the trajectory is still way worse than we need it to be, and a lot of attention has to be paid to that. So at the same time that we're dealing with COVID, we can't forget about the other big global challenges. Climate change is a big one which needs attention, but also inequality and inequity across the planet and that's going to be punctuated or emphasized as a result of the COVID-19. So we need to not only walk and chew gum at the same time, we probably need to walk, chew gum and learn the violin at the same time Mm. and that's the way the emerging future looks to me. It's complex. It's interesting to say that I mean, in Australia particularly, I mean our political leadership was looking fairly lost during the bushfires process. Yeah. And in fact, I'd say around the world, there was a lot of political leadership that was looking fairly powerless and fairly lost as to what it should do. One of the things I've seen, Peter, is that COVID has actually almost given leaders a chance to lead again because they can see obvious things to do. Yeah, and also they didn't have an option... I mean, this has really jammed home that need to act, I think. I do also think that there's a much clearer understanding, at least in some quarters now, that you can't wait for the data. You know, this is giving us a really classic example where the transmission is happening and you put in 
a measure and you're not going to see the result of that measure for a couple of weeks. I saw a guy from WHO, Michael Ryan, interviewed and he was talking, he has a lot of experience with uh, dealing with disease outbreaks and pandemics. He spoke to the fact that if you won't act until you're right, you'll always be late. Yeah. You need to get out there, act. Yes, you may revise what happens, but the good has to be followed. Don't wait for the perfect. If you need the data before you act, it's, it's too slow. It's too and, late, yeah. And I think this has been shown quite clearly now. So do you think that the seeming unwillingness for political leaders to respond to a very slow unfolding catastrophe like climate change and what has been a relatively rapid response. It might have been slow, but you've got to say they have moved very quickly in countries when they could. Do you think it's going to flow back over or do you think that once this, once this virus is under control, then people return to their old, I don't agree with the science response to climate? I don't think we're going to go back to the I don't agree with the science response but I do think there are still vested interests who may not want fast action on climate change. But I think that the growing movement across the planet is accepting that something really does have to happen and it has to happen fast. How fast that will happen is really debatable. I think it's interesting, though, that meetings like the World Economic Forum which you wouldn't say are necessarily the most progressive in terms of thinking, have been recognising that over the last five years or so, the risks which are getting the highest likelihood and impact ratings from business are now clearly moving into the environmental field. So they're paying more attention. And it's interesting they did a, a survey this year also with a group which were sort of, I think they called them the shapers, which were younger. And, of course, the younger ones saw that even more acutely. So there's a generational issue here. Uh, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, more power to her. I think her message is absolutely right. People who don't want to hear it, though, of course, won't. And we know that uh, just screaming about the facts doesn't change people's behaviour. There need to be other levers. Wouldn't it be great if as part of the uh, package to bring some economic recovery in Australia, there was investment in some way in rapidly moving to renewables? I mean, I know I'm dreaming, but that would be a very good use of resources with a bigger payback, I would think. Actually, the other futures issue which is emerging for me is the economic frameworks are clearly a problem and how do you actually move to another set of or another way of thinking and I've been reading around some you know uh, sustainable uh, steady state economic stuff Herman Daly old but still relevant and some of the green economics I think there's going to be more focus on how can we shift this to another way of looking at how we live on the planet without destroying the natural capital at such a great rate and probably very big discussions, I would hope, around what true sustainability is because we're nowhere near it. 
And even in the article that uh, Sahau and I, the blog piece around black swans at the end, talking about including cost-benefit of changing agricultural practices or whatever and taking into account the impacts of emerging infectious disease, I think we want to go way further than that. You know, it shouldn't actually be cost-benefit. It should be around what the planet needs to continue to support us, but there's also value in nature in itself. You shouldn't have to put a cost on stuff. At least the way we cost it is not reflective of what the real value is, and we are not doing that well at all. And in an emerging future, which I'd like to see, that would become very transparent and obvious, not just to people who are thinking about it, but to people who are just living or sleepwalking almost on the rest of the planet. If that became just the normal background, the way we see things, we would be living in a much different way with a different footprint on this earth. Question four, one I ask, and I think you had a good practice at this for quite a few years. How do you explain what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? For people who are in more traditional uh, departmental type frameworks, I often explain the work I do as a very advanced uh, an expanded form of risk management. Yep. Uh, and that's because it's coming at them from where they can understand how it might help them. I think that sells it short, but it gets me in the door in a sense. For other things that I do, I tell them or try to explain to them that we are trying to expand that range of strategic options so that you can see things from a different set of perspectives and you may come up with not necessarily solutions, but pathways which are more resilient and more robust. So the issue around resilience, some of them get that, that you want to have something which is going to handle a range of different threats or uh, futures which are thrown at you. But developing really robust policies and approaches is probably just as important, if not more important, in the sense that they can adapt as things move ahead. And that's more difficult. But I do try and explain that that's one of the strengths of thinking this way. So that's what I'm on about. The other thing that I actually explain what I do, if I'm depends on who I'm talking to, I will explain that what I'm trying to do is infect a number of people with some foresight, basic literacy, or infect people with enough interest that they might go and chase this up so that there is further work around it. In the regional work that I've done in the, with FAO, we have talked about futures policy planning and we've put it into that context. And a lot of that is only an opening because a lot of countries would like to have some idea of where they're headed in terms of their production, but also what some of those threats that will come with that changing in production or land use so that they can actually get in front of the game. Now, obviously, really good foresight would help that, but I am not selling foresight directly within that space. I'm just saying this is uh, there's some methodologies that can be used here which will help with uh, futures policy and planning. So I 
change my message a bit to suit the audience. But in the end, we're trying to make wise decisions, wiser decisions which understand what the external world is and what the socioeconomic drivers are and how they might change over time so that we're better positioned. If I have to give it in a sentence, it's basically we would like to help make much wiser decisions which support a much more sustainable way of living, full stop. Given that you're coming from a risk and to some extent you've always had the kind of spectre of, you know, the next big pandemic, which we talked about, the next Spanish flu, we've probably got it now. How does that balance in with hope and giving people agency to believe they can respond? Well, I think agency exists as soon as uh, you recognise that the way that we interact with the planet does mean that these things will happen from time to time. Controlling the response to that is part of, or at least trying to manage the response, is part of that. But I am also very careful not to give an impression that we are in control. I think, in a way, I have got the view, uh, James Kay said it best probably, that part of a scientist's role is actually about sharing about how the future might unfold. There should be hope in that. But don't kid yourself into believing that you will have control over that. You need to be humble enough to recognise that it is a very complex world and there will be things which are difficult and we will muddle through. It becomes much more uh, part of your inner story about how you will adapt and live through that. I think hope is essential for most of us to get up in the morning and move forward. And at the moment, with this COVID-19, it's very easily to become overwhelmed, especially by some of the information. But we still have these psychological biases where we overestimate how good things are going to be. And I think that's a pretty good adaptive response to make sure that we can function usefully in the, in the world, especially under the current circumstances. Let's close on question five, which we may as well talk about it. <laughs> it's, been, it it's been with us all the way through the conversation. So, yeah, um, COVID, us, the future. I think COVID's going to be, uh, it's a teaching moment in lots of ways. I think, and I am a little concerned, that if it turns the corner and we come out with an outcome which is a bit, bit better than anticipated, there'll be a lot of pressure to snap back to business as usual. It won't be business as usual, but there'll be pressure to come back to as close to that as possible, as quickly as possible. And I think you even hear that in the narrative around you know, building the bridge so we can get through to the other side and then we can quickly bounce back economically within Australia. I would hope that that is not the case. Fundamentally, this should be a chance for us to reset, but whether 
we will or not, I think, in some unfortunate ways, depends on how bad things are or how long they last. The longer some of the pain lasts, the more likely it is that there might be extra energy to take the advantage around the reset and reconsider what the futures are that we want. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. COVID is also going to obviously in many countries highlight the inadequacies of surge capacity and probably should and could lead to improved use of technologies which already exist and how that could be used in the future to manage other outbreaks or pandemics like this. I think we haven't taken advantage of some of the technology, but we also don't have a mature global worldview which allows us to accept that life and death is pretty central to the way we have evolved on the planet forever, and that is going to be still the case in the future. There's no joy at all in this COVID, but there are some potential silver linings if society can respond in a range of different ways. I've seen there's a lot of interest, obviously, in the futures community thinking about this, but there's also some who believe that that bounce back is going to happen faster than we might like. I think also there's a lot of interest, uh, not just in the futures community, but more generally in people who are interested about their future, about what we can keep from the past, what we value, but we want, we definitely want to throw away. And there's been a lot of discussion around the working from home issue and that, that, that sort of technology. And I think that's all great. I think they will change. I think education systems will probably get a bit of a kick from this in terms of what can and can't be delivered. So there will be change come from this COVID, no doubt. But I'd like to think that we can harness a lot of that energy uh, towards a much more balanced future about the way we live on the planet. So I accept everything you've said. And you aren't saying that it's up to the people with the policy positions to put the right policies in place. That's not all you're saying. But what are the changes that Peter Black's going to put in place as a result of COVID? Uh, Peter Black's going to put some... Uh, I've reevaluated, like many people have, what's truly important in Peter Black's life. In some ways, Peter Black probably had bought a used future too and has. Uh, come into stark relief uh, as a result of COVID. So some of the things that I thought were going to be important to me in this stage of my life, which is, I wouldn't say semi-retirement, but I don't want to be working 365 days of the year. I want to have choice about when I do and do not give my energies to different things. That could still be true, but I think I'm going to be refocusing much more strongly on the importance of relationships and my relationships with other people, but also my relationships with the planet. So waking up and looking outside and enjoying the fact that I can actually see green trees and the ocean in the distance and breathe clean air, its value has gone up quite drastically with COVID. Mm. The fact that once my quarantine's finished, potentially I could walk on the beach with the dog and have a swim which I always enjoyed, 
but I think that I might appreciate that a little more than I did a month ago. Well, Pete, it's been great to catch up again. It's been a long time since we had a chat. Thank you very much for taking some time out in your quarantine to talk to the FuturePod community. been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Look forward to talking again sometime. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.